Uh, well, welcome to Ridge Church today. Glad that you are joining us. If you're new, my name is Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here. And, and for those of you who are regulars at Ridge Church, uh, you should have received an email in the last couple of days, day or two, about our annual general meeting, which is going to happen on Sunday, February 28th, 11.30 in the morning. And uh, it'll have told you sort of all the details around that. If you didn't get an email and you want to know more about it, just send a note to the office. We'd be glad to, to get that to you. If you need a paper copy of it, stop by the office. We're glad to get that to you too. But we want to encourage you to come out. We need you to come out for our annual general meeting uh, Sunday, February 28th. All right, well, we're carrying on in our study around the fruit of the Spirit, and today we're talking about kindness. And kindness is one of the virtues that sort of has a lost virtue these days in our culture. It's kind of the forgotten virtue, uh, and it's, uh, uh, in fact, it's got a bit of a bad rap. Uh, kindness is sort of the thing that, like, Boy Scouts do or, or little old ladies, but it's, it's thought less these days that it's something that people who are you know, going places are doing, or that, you know, those who are changing the world or those who are trying to stop the changes of the world that they're doing. In fact, uh, kindness in a lot of ways feels like a hindrance uh, to people these days or like a fool's errand. And a lot of our culture today, uh, there's a lot more harshness than there is kindness. And unfortunately, that isn't just the case in the culture around us. Uh, sometimes it's the case for us as followers of Jesus too. It's easy for us to forget that kindness is one of the fruit of the Spirit, just like love, joy, peace, and patience. And while we know that it's part of the fruit of the Spirit, it's often that we kind of consider it a sort of a second tier on that. I mean, the top tier is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. They're kind of, they're good, but they're not that or as important anyway. Uh, you know, kindness is about doing some random acts of kindness or being kind on occasion here, or, you know, it's a good thing to do. But, but less do, these days do we think about kindness as something that, that God calls us to, that, that God mandates for us in our lives. We think less of kindness these days as a way of life. And frankly, uh, we think uh, rarely that it is one of the main ways, and really, frankly, a very powerful way to see change in our world. Uh, in a lot of ways, it's like we've devalued kindness as as, a, as an important virtue. And in fact, uh, a guy named uh, Cor Barry Corey, the president of Biola University, writes this about kindness. He says this, We devalue its power when we think of kindness as pampering or random acts. Kindness doesn't pamper, and it's not random. It's radical. It's brave and daring, fearless and courageous, and at times kindness is dangerous. It has more power to change people than we can imagine can break down seemingly impenetrable walls. It can reconcile relationships long thought irreparable. It can empower leaders and break stalemates. It can reconcile nations. Kindness as Jesus lived it is at the heart of peacemaking. Don't sell kindness short. Kindness is a key aspect, a key element of the fruit of the Spirit. And if we have the Spirit of God at work in our lives, kindness should flow out of our lives. And particularly as Christians, at this point of history, in this day in our culture, kindness is going to be more important than ever. Because if you haven't noticed, the view of our culture towards Christians has been changing dramatically over the last number of years. In, in a culture that highly values tolerance, more and more Christians are being pegged or, or labeled as being intolerant and as being aggressive and even uh, just downright nasty. Now, 
Some of that is just not deserved. Some of that is because of biases in the media or caricatures on TV and on, you know, on, on shows. For instance, if I think about any pastor that I've seen depicted on a TV show in the last 10 or 15 years, either he is depicted as a bumbling, inept idiot or as a slimy, controlling monster. So there's lots of you know, wrong attitudes out there around, around what it means to be a Christian. And, and a lot of that's not deserved. But some of our reputation for being unkind is deserved. Some of it is because uh, we, uh, and in some cases our brothers and sisters to the south of us more, but us too have been involved in these culture wars. And as we've been fighting for our values and for what we stand is right, rather than doing it with gentleness and respect, instead often there's been harshness and anger and sometimes downright hatred. And the fact of the matter is that that hasn't been working well for us. I mean, it hasn't been changing the trajectory of where our culture is going, but instead, that kind of an attitude towards those who hold different values than us has resulted in damaging our testimony rather than strengthening our testimony. And whether or not we personally have been unkind in that whole process, the fact of the matter is that because we're followers of Jesus, we get labeled that way. And so, uh, it becomes important, more important than ever, that we think about kindness and that we live out our lives as a people who are known for kindness. And in fact, that's our heritage. Uh, you know, the Greek word for kindness is the word krestos, which sounds very similar to the Greek word for Christ, which is Christos. And the early church fathers uh, let us know that in the early days of the followers of Jesus, the people were kind of confused about what these new followers of Jesus were. And so rather than referring to them as Christians, they ended up referring them as uh, the kind people. And that's a beautiful reputation to have. And that's the kind of reputation we should still have in the world around us. And yet, in a lot of ways, we don't. And I think part of the reason why, why uh, so many Christians, especially those who are passionate about truth and, and justice in our world are hesitant around this whole idea of embracing kindness as a way of life and, and a way that we should live is because they think that kindness means giving up what we stand for. They think kindness means getting soft on our beliefs and not really projecting or communicating to others what it is that we believe. And the problem is, is that they've confused kindness with being nice. And there's a huge difference between kindness and being nice. Being nice is having somebody who, who works in your work and, and not having the, the courage to let them know that that's not really a right place, a good fit for them. And so you just, you just let them continue working in a job and it's not great for you or the company or for them, but you don't have the courage to be kind. Kindness is letting them know that that's the case and then granting them great dignity as they transition out. Nice is about being timid and weak and fearful, and just doing whatever you can so that you don't cause anyone to be upset about anything. Kindness, on the other hand, is about having strong, deep convictions, but communicating them with gentleness and respect. Niceness is not biblical in any way. The, the word nice or niceness doesn't appear anywhere at all in the Bible. But kindness is deeply biblical. It's rooted in the very nature of God himself. It's founded throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's demonstrated in the life of Jesus, and it's been lived out for centuries by 
followers of Jesus who practice what one commentator calls the risky and sometimes dangerous road of kindness. So, let's clarify the difference between niceness and kindness. To be nice is, having, is about having soft edges and a spongy center. In other words, nice means that a person uh, is, is easy to get along with because on the inside, they're willing to shift their beliefs, their values to wh- wherever it kind of needs to go so that they can get along well with others. That's being nice. On the opposite end of that spectrum is being aggressive. And aggressive is all about having hard edges and a firm center. And these are people who have uh, firm beliefs and deep convic- convictions that they hold very dearly. But every time that they're involved in a conversation, they're always on the offensive. They're always driving to get others to, to take their point of view. And, and they're pushy about it. And even if they are listening, and they will listen, but even if they're listening, they're not listening because they want to understand the other person or they want to develop a relationship with the other person or they want to know where that person's coming from. Rather, they're listening to hear where that person will trip up where there's a hole in their logic or a weakness in their theology or, or a misunderstanding of the situation so that they can pounce in again and, and bring what they want to say to the whole conversation. That's being aggressive. Kindness is neither being nice nor being aggressive. Kindness is about having soft edges and a firm center. See, people who are kind have deep convictions, deep convictions that they hold very clearly to the truth and they want others to know Those convictions. In fact, they want others to come around and also hold those very convictions. But at the same time, and this is what makes kindness both so powerful and at the same time so risky, they genuinely care for the other person, even if that person is dead opposed to what they stand for. And that takes courage, and, and that's risky, but it's also a radical thing. Now, the biblical foundation for this kind of kindness, for biblical kindness, it comes... First of all, in the Old Testament. In fact, if you have your Bibles, uh, flip open to Micah chapter 6. Famous famous verses out of Micah chapter 6. The prophet, he's sort of musing, he's kind of asking out loud, how do I show God that I'm serious about following him? That I'm deeply committed to to living the way that he wants me to live. So he starts this way, verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? with calves a year old. He says, you know, should I offer a calf? You think about a calf, that's a, that's a costly thing because if you offer a calf, no longer do you have a chance to, to breed that calf or to get milk from that calf or, or meat. I mean, that costs. He's like, yeah, maybe. But, but I actually up the, up the game. And so then he goes on in verse 7 to say this. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens, ten thousands of rivers of oil? He's like, Okay, not just a calf, thousands of rams, thousands of rivers of olive oil. I mean, he really ups it. And then he goes on and says, actually, I could up it one more. He says, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? It's like, should I offer God my firstborn because of the sin of my life? And then he says this in verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. You know, if you want to honor God in your life, if you want to demonstrate, God, I want to follow you, I want to serve you, this is what you need to do, to do justice, to love kindness, 
and to walk humbly with God, to have a, a humble an honest, ongoing relationship with God. But then he says to love kindness. Now, that's not, that's not like, hey, do a few random acts here or there. It's not like be kind on occasion. It's not even think kindness is a good thing. He says you should love kindness. You should be passionate about kindness. That's why other, where other places in the, New, or in the Old Testament, it talks about loving kindness. These two are combined, as so much of the fruit of the Spirit is, you're to have this love and this kindness that flow hand in hand. And that doesn't do away with justice, right? I mean, the other part is to do justice. So again, you can stand strongly for what is right and, and true and just, but you can do it with kindness. And in fact, uh, the New Testament has the same exact idea. The Apostle Peter puts it this way. He says this, But in your hearts honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. And yet do it with gentleness and respect. Same concept, right? As followers of Jesus, we need to have firm convictions. We need to know where we stand and why we stand where we do. And in fact, too many Christians have a very spongy center. I mean, they, they, you know, if you ask them about their faith, they're like, well, I, I know that God loves me. And I know he died on the cross for me. He sent Jesus. But after that, it gets kind of really vague. And because they've never done the hard work to really know and understand what the Bible teaches so that they can give an answer for the hope that we have in Jesus, then every time that our culture shifts again on where it stands, they kind of shift with it. They're like, well, I don't want anyone to be upset with me. And it sounds good, so I'll just be nice and go with it. Apostle Peter says, no, no. We need to know what we believe and where we stand. But then when we do, then, then we when we have those firm convictions and those deep-held beliefs, we need to, to answer people. We need to interact with people, he says, with gentleness and respect. You see, that's the kindness that the Bible is speaking about here. It's firm center and soft edges. And this very thing is in the very nature of God. I mean, ultimately, it comes from God himself. Listen to the words that God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast in their wisdom. Let, 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 let people not boast in how much they know and who they've read and all. Let them not boast in their wisdom or the strong boast in their strength or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight. God says, you know what you boast in? You boast that you know him. And the first thing he lists there, kindness, along with justice and righteousness. Again, they go together. Kindness, soft edges, firm center. We are to be kind because that's who God is. We're a reflection of his. So, soft edges, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But first, let's start talking about that firm center. You know, in our culture, in our day, as followers of Jesus, it's important that we don't lose sight of what that firm center is for us. You know, one of the dangers that we face in a, in a world that is more and more polarized, with more and more voices on the left and on the right, is that we begin to think that the firm center is Jesus plus. Jesus plus the right policies. Firm center, sometimes people begin to think is Jesus plus the right person in political power. Jesus plus the right political ideology. 
In fact, sometimes if people aren't careful, they could be like, yes, yes, Jesus, but, but really salvation is found through having the right politics. In an article in Christianity Today, a Bonnie Christian writes this. Too many evangelicals are catechized more by their favorite niche political podcast and pundits and politicians than by the Bible. A characterization which I suspect might be unwelcome, but which is indisputable if we consider the time allotted to each. Here's what she's saying. Too many Christians are spending way too much time in politics, listening to podcasts about politics and politics and their pundits way more than they are listening to and learning what the Word of God teaches about how it is that we ought to live and follow Jesus. And the result is that their belief system is being, she says, catechized. That's a, that's a, a, a religious term saying that their belief system is being trained to put politics ahead of Jesus. Now listen, don't hear me saying that we shouldn't be involved in politics. I've said it many times. In this country, we have the privilege and the opportunity to participate in politics, and we should. But we need to be careful that in that process of doing that, that we keep Jesus at the very center and the foundation of how it is that we participate in the political world around us. And then on the extreme, on the extremes of both the left and the right, is this remarkable and somewhat troubling rise of this whole thing of the, the conspiracy theories. And, uh, you know, many of these, uh, th actually, the, the troubling thing about these conspiracy theories is that many of the people who have been the quickest to latch on and the most tenacious to continue holding on to them are other Christians. And a lot of these conspiracy theories revolve around some sort of sinister, powerful element within the U.S. government. And uh, one, uh, one uh, Christian commentator noted that the U.S. government isn't exactly the picture of efficiency uh, and uh, sort of this well-oiled machine. And yet so many of these conspiracies hinge on this unbelievable assumption that hundreds and even thousands of people are able to work together in harmony to accomplish this singular sort of sinister goal under the, under the unknowing eyes of the American people. He goes on to say, think about the bureaucratic inefficiencies, the petty dramas, the, the divided loyalties in your own workplace. Do you think it's better in the federal government? Probably much worse. And he goes on to say that those who, who least trust the government, who think it's the most inept and least trustworthy, are often those who also think that it's the one that's carrying on this incredible conspiracy behind everyone's backs. Now, frankly, I don't think that anybody in our church is following conspiracy theories, at least no one that I'm aware of. But I just want to say that if you are, you've got to, you've got to drop that. Because you see, we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, should never traffic in conspiracy theories. We of all people should not traffic in conspiracy theories because our faith rests on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in the first century, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was at the center of what was considered the greatest conspiracy of all time. And that conspiracy theory went this way, that this man Jesus came, claimed to be the Messiah, made all these incredible claims, and was headed to take over control of Israel when the Romans caught up with him. They arrested him, they tried him, they hung him on a cross, and he died. And his followers were so upset that rather than admitting that he died, they snuck in, 11 of them, stole his body and claimed that he had risen from the dead. Some would say that that is the greatest cover-up, the greatest conspiracy in all of history. But as Chuck Colson pointed out in his defense of the truth of Jesus' resurrection, such a thing would have been impossible. 
11 men would have never been able to keep that kind of a secret that long. It would have come out if, in fact, it hadn't been true that Jesus had risen from the grave. And the reason why Chuck Colson could say that is because he was one of five or six men at the very heart of the Watergate scandal that brought down the Nixon presidency. And what he said is that five or six of the most powerful, most driven, some of the smartest men in the entire United States could not keep hidden a bungled robbery at an office in a hotel called Watergate. And as a result, the, the Nixon presidency ended. He said, if five or six men like that with all of their ability could not keep something like that hidden, 11 men in Jesus' day couldn't have kept Jesus, you know, if they had faked Jesus' resurrection, they couldn't have kept that a secret. And by extension, there's no possible way that thousands of people within the federal government could keep for decades some sort of secret conspiracy going. We of all people should not be involved in trafficking conspiracies. In fact, a Christian commentator, you know, noticing this trend, he tweeted this. He said, last week, my Facebook feed was full of people posting crazy COVID conspiracy theories, followed by posts about evidence for the resurrection. He says, I don't think they realize the message they're sending. Right. Let's think carefully about the kind of things that we are following. So again, like I said, I don't think the people in our church are, are following that. But it might be that you know, our family or our friends are picking up on those conspiracy theories. And the question is, how do we respond to that? How do we respond when they come and start telling us these kinds of conspiracy theories? And the answer is that we need to respond with kindness, soft edges, and with a firm center. We need to respond with genuine relationships, firm center, and good questions. Because as G.K. Chesterton uh, explained in his book, Orthodoxy, he says, you're not going to explain you're not going to argue somebody out of a, a conspiracy theory because everything that you say just adds to their thinking, yes, you don't get it. There's a conspiracy going on. Instead, what he invites us to do is to help them uh, just receive what he calls air. Uh, so to show that there is something, he says, cleaner and cooler outside of the suffocating of a single argument. In other words, what he's suggesting and what we should do is to, to show kindness have real relationships, stay firm on the truth of what we know, and to invite them to ask questions and to ask questions of them and to give them the safety to consider that possibly their position and their thinking is wrong. And in fact, this is the case not just when it comes to conspiracy theories. This is the case in general. If we want to change people's perception and their, their hearts and minds about anything, and in particular about Jesus Christ, we've got to do it with kindness. Because Kindness is a powerful way to change people's hearts and minds. In Matthew 10, Matthew 10, Jesus sends out his disciples and, and he, he sends them on mission to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Kingdom of God is coming. And if you read Matthew chapter 10 all throughout, Jesus gives all this kind of wisdom about how to go about it. He says, when you come to a new place, look for a place of peace that welcomes you in. And that you should be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. And that you shouldn't be expected that everyone will just welcome you with open arms. And that you've got to be all in. That you've got to put Jesus even ahead of your own family. And then in verse 40, he says this. Anyone who welcomes you, welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me, welcomes the one who sent me. Jesus explains this. That when people welcome you, 
when you display the kind, the kind of kindness in your life that they welcome you into their world, then in essence, they're welcoming Jesus into their world. And, and through Jesus in you, they have the opportunity to be introduced to a relationship with God. Now, that doesn't happen necessarily every time. But when we come with kindness, when we come with soft edges but a firm center, never soft-pedaling the gospel, we're always firm on what the gospel is, but with gentleness and respect, that opens up doors for us to have real conversations and real relationships with G uh, people about Jesus. And it opens up an opportunity for them to know and to meet Jesus. But you know, in a polarized world, that's risky. It's risky to go to people uh, who don't know Jesus with kindness because maybe, maybe they reject you. That's painful. But if they don't, there's the danger that other Christians who don't understand what biblical kindness is will accuse you of being soft on what you believe because you're hanging out with that crowd. Billy Graham, 1949, at this huge revival he's preaching at in Los Angeles, he gets up and he preaches this barn burner of a sermon against communism. In fact, he calls communism, and I quote, directed and motivated by the devil himself. And he makes it pretty clear where he stands on communism. It's 1949. By 1992, there's these images of, of Billy Graham standing back, uh, right beside the, the brutal dictator of North Korea, at that time, uh, Kim Jong-il, and saying respectful things about him. And the question is, what happened to Billy Graham? Did he go soft on communism? Did he, did he change what he believed? And the answer is no. To his dying day, Billy Graham believed that communism was a wicked system and went against, you know, the work of God in people's lives. But what did change was his view about, not, not communism, but how to treat people who believed in communism. And, and he began in the mid-70s, he began to develop relationships with people in, in the governments of Eastern Bloc nations. And in 1977, he was invited to come and to preach in the, in the nation of Hungary. And the next year, 1978, at the height of the Cold War, he preached in Poland. And throughout the mid-1980s, he preached in places like East Germany and Czechoslovakia, uh, Czechoslovakia and Romania. And he took heat for that. In his alma mater, Wheaton College, the students there wore placards that read, Billy Graham has been duped by the Soviets. But you know what? Billy Graham got to preach the gospel to people and in places that those who threw stones at him would never have the chance. And in fact, uh, uh, in an interview in, uh, in 2001, Dan Rather, the famous uh, news anchor, said this, Graham's efforts in the Eastern Bloc contributed to the fall of communism and in no small way. And he went on to say he was right and I was wrong big time. You see, kindness opens doors. If you enter a relationship with people who hold different views, it, it, it's risky. It's risky. I mean, the, the danger is that you will be attacked by those who don't understand what it is you're doing. But if you open up to them, if you build genuine relationships and truly care for them and, and really listen to them, then even if you take some shots for that, you're doing what your Heavenly Father wants you to do. In fact, listen to the words of Jesus. Here's what he says. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? If you love those who are in the church... They love you. What credit is that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those 
from whom you expect repayment? What credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. That's what your Father in Heaven is. He's kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. You know, when you, hold, uh, when you show kindness to those who hold different views than you, are, than you do, even if they're extremely different, you're doing what your Father in Heaven does. You're, you're, uh, th- and then the people see what a true follower of Jesus looks like from close up. Not, not some caricature that they saw on TV, some bias that they read in the media somewhere, but up close in person. And that opens opportunities for people to hear the message of Jesus Christ. So this is the first reason why we need to, why we must be a people who are characterized by kindness. Because kindness opens doors for the gospel. But then here's the second reason. And that's because kindness leads to repentance. You ever, have you ever had somebody yell at you, you're an idiot, you're so stupid, I can't understand why you would do that, what is the matter with you? When they were done, did you say, yeah, you're right, boy, I should change. Boy, I, boy, I wish I'd be more like you. Of course not. It's not attacking people that causes them to change their mind. Rather, it's kindness. And again, we think it's weak, but kindness is incredibly powerful. And it's based, again, on what our Father in heaven does. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 2, verse 4. He says, or do you show contempt for the riches of his, that is God's kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, not his wrath. Now, his wrath is totally justified. It's perfectly righteous. And God never hides the fact that we are sinners and that we're due the wrath of God. But that's not what he leads with. He leads with kindness. He woos us. He starts by sending his own son to suffer and to die for us even while we were in open rebellion against him. That's kindness. And that's how we ought to also live. Kindness leads to repentance. If you want to see people's hearts changed, if you want to see their minds changed, the way isn't to attack them. It's rather to show them incredible kindness. Which means that in a polarized world, where people are adamant and sometimes even vehemently opposed to the message of the gospel, we can't fight fire with fire. Rather, rather we need to to follow God's lead and go with kindness. Soft edges, firm center, because it leads to, re- to, to repentance. We need to be known. We must be known as a people of kindness. So how do we do that? Four, four things that I'd like to suggest for us. How to be a people of kindness. First of all, number one, a firm center and soft edges means that we need to engage more with the people in the world around us, not less. You know, when we notice that the the culture around us is changing more and more, the temptation is for us to fold in on ourselves, to just spend more and more time with people who are just like us. But the fact is we need to do the opposite. We need to just continue to press out. Even though that community is so important and we, we encourage you to be in community, we also want to encourage genuine, real relationships with people who don't know Jesus. And amen, we know people. We have acquaintances with them and we... You know, we have coworkers that aren't followers of Jesus. But the question is, do we know people 
Are we friends with people? Where we're sharing life together with people who don't know Jesus? Because that kind of kindness is powerful. If you want a brilliant picture of that, a, a sort of extreme picture of that, uh, you need to Google Dan Cathy and Shane Windmeyer. Dan Cathy is the COO, CEO, uh, founder of Chick-fil-A. He's a deeply Christian man, and he founded this huge sort of fast food empire down in the States that runs on deeply biblical principles. Shane uh, Windmeyer is the national director of the LGBT group called Campus Pride. And as the director of Campus Pride, he took offense and exception to the fact that Chick-fil-A and Dan, Dan Cathy were uh, putting money to support the traditional, the biblical definition of marriage. And so he started this huge sort of campaign against Chick-fil-A. And at the height of that campaign, in the midst of all this sort of, you know, anti-Chick-fil-A rhetoric, uh, he got a phone call. And on the other end of the phone call was Dan Cathy. And he didn't know what he was about to get from this guy that was leading the very organization that he was attacking. He thought he was going to get attacked or his lawyers were going to be sent. And instead, Dan started a conversation with him. And then he called him again and had another conversation. And then he texted them. And then he invited him to, out, out for dinner. And, and what grew out of that was a friendship. And if you Google, you'll find an article by the Huffington Post with this, written by Shane Windmeyer. That's, here's the headline. It says, Dan and me, my coming out as a friend of Dan and Chick-fil-A. This is what he writes. Yes, after months of personal phone calls, text messages, and in-person meetings, I'm coming out in a new way as a friend of Chick-fil-A's president and COO, Dan Cathy. And I'm nervous about it. I have come to know him and Chick-fil-A in ways that I would not have thought possible when I first started hearing from LGBT students about their concerns over the chicken chain's giving practices. For many, this news of friendship might be shocking. After all, I'm an out. 40-year-old gay man, and a lifelong activist for equality. I'm also the founder and executive director of Campus Pride, the leading national organization for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and ally college students. It's a remarkable story. I mean, you should read the article. Dan Cathy, this Christian man, he practiced everything that we're talking about here. And the result was profound. These two on opposite ends became friends. And while they haven't necessarily changed their positions, there's this, this different relationship and a different understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But the same idea plays out closer to, to home. You know, a friend of mine from seminary, he told me that he'd become good friends with a guy who had no, wanted nothing to do with, with Christianity or, or Jesus. Uh, but they became such good friends that that guy would tell my friend from seminary, he'd say, you're my best religious friend. And my friend from seminary would say back to him, ha, ha. Well, you're my best pagan friend. And he was his best pagan friend until one day that friend gave his life to follow Jesus. You see, we need to keep building those kinds of friendships in our lives. Genuine, real friendships with people who don't know Jesus. In fact, that's why this week many of our community groups, probably all of them, are taking the week off from their regular meeting uh, because we want to encourage people in something called No Ridge, K-N-O-W, No Ridge, to get to know the people around us, to develop genuine relationships with people who aren't Christians. Not in some gimmicky way, not in some like, oh, they're my project, i got to tell them about Jesus, but because they like them, because they genuinely want to be friends with them, 
And, and it just takes time to develop those kinds of friendships. And, and if we're always doing stuff at church, we don't always have time for that. And the, and, the, and the goal there is to build the kind of relationships so that down the road, real conversations take place, real back and forth, and the opportunity with kindness, with a firm center and soft edges to share the message of the gospel. And even if you're not in one of our Ridge communities, I want to encourage you this week. It's not easy in the middle of COVID, but I want to encourage you, find some way to just to add a little momentum to some sort of relationship that you have with someone who doesn't know Jesus. We aren't going to reach our city with the message of the gospel if we don't know the people in our city. We need to keep reaching out. That's the first thing. Number two, a firm center and soft edges mean that we don't react when people reject our kindness. You know, when we put ourselves out kindly, present what we stand for, there will still be people who, who become mean and nasty towards us. And the temptation then is to get mean and nasty back, especially online. It's remarkable the kinds of things that people are willing to say and to write online that they would never say to somebody's, you know, to somebody in person, to their face. And Christians can get drawn into that very same thing. We forget the words of James, James 1.9, which says that we as followers of Jesus should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. So be so wise what you write online. So be so careful what you post. And even if you get a post that someone else says, like, like I didn't say it, but boy, they said it well. If it's not something that you'd be willing to say face-to-face to somebody that you knew who wasn't a follower of Jesus, don't, don't forward that. Don't repost that or, or whatever way, pass that on. And if you insist on doing that, if you insist on, on being harsh or forwarding those kinds of things, then please remove any reference in your bio or in your comments that you're a follower of Jesus because that's simply not what followers of Jesus do. Third, a firm center and soft edges mean that we need to remain deeply rooted in biblical faithfulness in a world that is more and more polarized by left and by right. It's easy to lose sight of what a biblical worldview is really all about. If we don't stay strongly and deeply in the Word of God, it's possible to abandon that firm center and get spongy and just go everywhere that the culture does. But it's also possible to go the other way and to begin to think that the center is, uh, shifts more to, to, the, you know, to the political world and that salvation is going to be found in a political agenda rather than in the atonement of Jesus Christ. The atoning work of, of Jesus Christ. It's more important than ever that we delve deeply into the Word of God. It's more important than ever that we know and understand good theology and what the Bible really says and then wrestle with how it is that we live that out in our, in our world. And that's not easy. That's not as easy as just saying things against them. But it's a task that we're called to do. And so my question for you is, how much time in your week, how many hours a day or a week are you spending listening to podcasts that are just political in nature, that are just, uh, you know, about the other side and what they're doing wrong? And again, don't hear me saying that you have to stop doing that. There's nothing wrong with being aware of what's going on in our world. But how much time do you also spend listening to solid teaching about the Word of God, theology and sermons and, and things that remind you again that God is sovereign over all? and to help you develop a biblical worldview. Because you see, if your diet is just one thing, if it's just red meat or just, you know, just sugary pop, that's not healthy. And the same thing when it comes to 
you know, how we think about the issues in the world around us. Let's make sure that we remain deeply in the Word of God. Okay, and then finally, number four. A firm center and soft edges means that we keep evangelism as a key focus. You know, one of the dangers of pursuing kindness is that if we're not careful, we can pursue kindness for the sake of kindness itself. We can begin to think that God's kindness led us to not repentance, but so that we can be kind to others. And of course, we should be kind to others, but the ultimate goal, the ultimate goal is that we live out our lives to make disciples, to lead others to know Jesus, to, to tell them about the hope that we have because of what Jesus has done in our lives. So we do need to continue to, to, to seek to be kind, but to seek to be clear in when we do that. Because the kindest moment in all of history was the moment that Jesus suffered on the cross for our sins, so that we could know life. Look, here's the challenge in this world that we live in today. The challenge is to be people who are known for their kindness. To live out of a Christ-centered life from which kindness spills out in every direction. Because kindness is powerful. Kindness is not for wimps. It's not for the weak. It's not for, you know, those who aren't going places. Kindness changes people's hearts. It changes people's lives. And so we should be a people of kindness. It's risky. It's revolutionary. It's unconventional. It, it, it's costly and it's hard. But isn't that what Jesus, following Jesus is all about? It's all of those things. And so let's, let's seek kindness in our life. Would you, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, today for your word, your word that challenges us, God, that it calls us back to you as the center. It calls us back to Jesus as the center of our life. And Father, I pray for each of us uh, today, wherever we find ourselves in the world around us, wherever we find ourselves on the political spectrum, uh, God, wherever we find ourselves in, in interacting with people around us, God, may we be characterized always by kindness always by a very clear and deeply held convictions about who you are and what you call us to do, but always with the gentleness and respect for the people around us. And God, where we've gone outside of that, either as individuals or we as the, the, the broader church in North America, God, we repent. And God, we ask for your forgiveness. And God, we ask that you would help us to restore relationships where we haven't been kind. God, for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of so many who need to know the message and the hope that we have in Jesus. So God, meet us here again today. Lead us on as we continue to follow after Jesus. We pray it in his precious name. Amen.